Okay, we have today's scripture. It's going to be up on the back, I believe. We're going to read out of Luke 18, 18 through 23. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. This is the word of the Lord. Let's welcome up Josh Kelly. Yeah, it's funny. Um, again, I'm Josh, if I haven't met you. So uh, my family and I have been part of this church for well, we have to subtract the COVID time, so because that's what makes it hard to realize, remember how long we've actually been here. So I don't know, about three years or so, and just really, uh, it's back in the day I was a, I was a pastor, and uh, it's just kind of fun to be able to preach every now and again. But remember, as a pastor, the thing, the sermon that you always dreaded giving was any sermon having to do with money, because you you like get these scenarios going in your head, like that there's that one family that. Uh, They've invited someone to church, and they've been working with their neighbor forever and trying to talk to them, and they finally got enough courage to bring this person to church, and that's the money you do the money sermon. That's the Sunday you do the money sermon, right? And so that's, you have those thoughts. And then plus, when you're working for the church, I mean, the way that it works is that we pay the salary of the pastor, and we pay Sean's salary because he devotes his full time to taking care of us, and so it's just, it's, it's this is the way the Bible talks about it, you know, so we're going to support him so he can do that, right? So it makes sense, but when you're the one giving a sermon about money and you know that that money goes to pay your salary, it feels a little weird. But now that I'm not a pastor anymore, I have no problem talking about money. It's like, you know, it, it, and I, there's two parts to that. First is, I believe in this church. I believe in the church worldwide, and I believe in this church. And so I want to see God providing for this church through us. That's part of it. But this is not a tithing sermon. It's a money sermon. So bigger than that, I believe, and this is like one of those, you, know, you have those like foundational truths that kind of like shape how you view the world. One of those foundational truths for me is that God's commands bring joy. I define sin as that which destroys me, destroys my relationship with other people, and destroys my relationship with God. And obeying God, doing what he tells me to do, will bring joy. Not necessarily in the immediate, because sometimes God's commands are hard. But long-term, they bring joy. And so if that's true, and that's straight up, that's, that's the stuff the Bible talks about. I go on and on about joy. Joy, joy is actually a ma massive theme of the Bible. The word joy occurs in the Bible more than even the word grace or love or righteousness. I mean, the Bible's all about joy. But if that's true then if I don't talk to you about God's commands about money, I'm actually keeping joy from you, right? So I get to, and now because, again, since I don't work here, I can just talk quite freely about money and why I, what I believe God has to say and why I think that brings joy. And so I'm excited about that. This is fun. Let's, uh, let's pray quickly, 
and then dive in. Father, thank you so much for this uh, fine fall morning. Um, it's crazy how quickly we went from summer to winter, but uh, it's kind of nice to have the changing of the season. And I pray that, that as we change the season, that we're able to kind of change our hearts and prepare for what's ahead for us. Um, I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit works through me, speaks to hearts of these people, that they hear what they need to hear for this time in their life. In your name, amen. So when it comes to money, things get complicated because we have a very complicated relationship with money. So I want to, first of all, give you kind of like my framework. So this kind of, again, goes to like um, how I believe life works, one of these big theories of, of everything. And if you've been here a while, you've kind of heard me. I'll try to give the very short version of the story. But I grew up in a good Christian home, going to good church and in youth group. They always presented it like, you know, the Christian walk was like this path, and, you're along, you're, and there's this cliff of sin that you have to avoid this cliff of sin. You know, you know well, if you're in high school, you know, in youth group is stuff, you know, like listening to bad music, smoking, you know, making out with your girlfriend, all those sort of things. And so I, the idea is you want to stay, you don't want to get close to this cliff of sin, destructive sin, uh, of complacency. And so I had no problem staying away from that cliff. But what no one told me is there's another cliff on the other side of the path of self-righteousness, of spiritual pride. That's the cliff that I dove off of, okay? I, I would walk around youth group thinking that, you know, I'm a better, I like I judge myself against other Christians, like how good of a Christian I was. I mean, it's that, I think about it, it's like, that's really messed up, but that was me. So that to say, this framework of the, the Christian life is really found in avoiding destructive sins and the normal way that we do thing, things as Americans, but at the same time also avoiding the obsessiveness, the self-righteousness. The, the, this, and I kind of use the term radical, this radical Christianity that I was taught was like the, thing, the pinnacle, the thing I was supposed to be striving for, was actually what would lead me into this destructive, this, this self-righteousness. So in my mind, and so I... I coined this phrase, radically normal. As Christians, we're supposed to live these radically normal lives. And so now I want to take that basic concept and talk about how that applies to money. Because money is one of the hardest places when it comes to being, comes to being obedient. I, I've known good Christian people who love Jesus, and they'll talk about him, they'll pray, they'll worship, but when it comes to actually giving money, that's the hard one. Because money is just so close to who we are. It, it provides so much of our identity. It provides security. You know, like you could feel, okay, the economy's going down the, down the, the uh, toilet, but I have lots of money in savings. You know, it's, it's so many things to us. And so this idea of giving money, of being generous, is a very difficult thing for us. Then we come upon passages like the one we had April read this morning, where it says that uh, Jesus tells this one guy, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and then you'll have treasures in heaven. This is one of those things we like to call a hard saying of the Bible. We just sell everything you have and give to the poor. Then you'll have treasures in heaven. What do we do with that? And I, I frankly don't hear a lot of pastors preaching on that passage because, uh, well, we don't want to tell everyone to sell everything, all their possessions, because that just doesn't go over well. And instead, the kind of like I hear what I hear pastors say is like, well, you need to be, um, and reading this one book that, that I'm going to talk about in a second, the thing was you have to be willing to give everything up. I, it kind of feels like a cop-out, to be honest. 
because apparently no one's got, God has actually called everyone, anyone to give everything up because no one has. So I'm not so sure we're willing. I'm not, I don't think that's the point this, of this passage, but I, I remember for years, and maybe you can relate to this a little bit, I would kind of keep my prayers a little shallow for fear that God was going to tell me to give, all, to give everything up to sell everything, right? Let's, you know, I, I, I'm, Jesus, I love you, but this whole selling everything, and I'm not so sure about that. Have you ever felt, you know, especially if you grew up in the church, this, you know, if you didn't, then this part of the sermon may not resonate with you, if you, you know, but if you grew up in the church, have you ever felt guilty for buying a new car? Like, maybe the money should have gone somewhere else. Um, for taking, going on a nice vacation instead of giving your money to the poor or going on a missions trip. Ever felt a little guilty for stuff like that? I remember actually there, uh, this Christian leader, there's this quote that's going around, this was a while back, that he said something like, how can we hold God's love for the poor and the widow and the orphan in one hand and tickets to Disneyland in the other? And you read that and it like, that sounds biblical, but I don't like that, <laughs> Right? So that, am I tracking with anyone? This feeling like I should be giving more, that somehow it's more biblical to give my money away than to keep it. It's more biblical, more holy to spend money on others than on myself. Right? Is this, is, am I tracking with anyone? And I remember uh, reading from uh, something, uh, a guy by the name of David Platt wrote a book called Radical, and he was talking about, and as I was reading this book, have you ever had a situation where you've read something or heard someone and you agree with so much of what they say, but there's something in there that just rubs you really wrong, right? So this is, I was reading this thing in this, his entire book, and here's kind of a summation of what he says. He says that uh, when Judgment Day comes, we are convinced that we will not wish we'd given more of ourselves to living the American dream. We will not wish that we had made more money, acquired more stuff, lived more comfortably, taken more vacations, watched more television, pursued a greater retirement, or been more successful in the eyes of the world. Instead, we will wish that we'd given more of ourselves to living for the day when every nation, tribe, people, and language will bow down at the throne and sing the praises of the Savior who delights in radical obedience and the God who deserves eternal worship. Reading that, I agree with so much of it. I, I, I don't like the American dream that the idea is to make as much money as you can retire, and then spend it all on yourself and do nothing. I mean, there's so many things that I agree with, but this just, I remember after reading this, I like was irritated. Like I was grumpy because I was trying to figure out what doesn't, something's wrong here. And I think I finally figured out that my frustration was he never said when more is enough. Is it always going to be more? Just give more, give more, give more. The, it's like God will never be satisfied you have to keep on giving more. And again, I think that that feeling can sometimes be a, a keep you from giving because you're afraid that once you go down that path of giving, you don't know where it's going to stop. So, and again, then you come up against a passage where it says, you know, sell everything, give to the poor. So is this the pinnacle of obedience? Is, this is the thing I've been, I was struggling with when I was kind of really working through. I actually wrote in that book, Basically, don't preach on this until you have a sol solution to this problem. And now I'm going to tell you what I think that solution is. But first, not long after reading that book and having that experience of like agreeing but disagreeing, then I went to the outlet mall 
with my family you know, down there in Marysville, I think it was like uh, Black Friday or the day after. And um, man, if you want a place that's, that's like a, a temple to money and to, and to discontentment and wanting more, that's the place. And this is several years ago. So I remember walking past, you know, like these shops that were dedicated to making my, my 11-year-old daughter look 16 or 18. I've seen people line up for the honor of coming into the new store to buy some designer perfume or uh, designer $250 jeans that were on sale for $205. And I just, I got grumpy again because like this is just, welcome to America. This is what we do. We spend money on stuff we really don't need. And so I know I don't want that for us either. That, that, that materialism, the, the, the sense that, that the only way that the, so many businesses stay in business is by breeding discontentment, right? By making us want more. So it's like, okay, I don't, the whole thing of giving all the money away, something doesn't feel right there. This, 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 this radical idea that God wants us to live on as, on as little as possible so that we give every cent that we have into missions and caring for the poor. I'm going to explain a little bit why I don't think that's right. But on the other hand, the normal American thing of spending all your money and all your energy, I'm sorry, spending all your energy to get more money, more stuff, and have more experiences, and only giving away what's left over, I don't like that either. So what are we supposed to be doing? Is it a sin to buy things? Is it a sin to buy nice things? Would God have anything about, to say about buying $205 pair of jeans? Would Jesus take his nephews and nieces to Disneyland? See, when it comes to money, and I'll get back to that, but when it comes to money, we have a very complicated relationship with the stuff of this earth. Um, and on one hand, and the Bible is kind of complicated when it talks about money as well. And that's why it's so easy for people to go to one street to the other, or the other. Because on one hand, the Bible has a lot of good things to say about money. In fact, if we're talking about the whole Bible, because, you know, the Old Testament is part of the Word of God as well, the Bible has a lot more positive things to say about money than negative. And in fact, you have things like in, in Proverbs where it says, humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. This is just like one little drop of all the Bible that, has to say about God's blessings that include material blessings. That, that if you live a godly life, it tends to work. And God, you know, if you're not being slothful, you tend to make more money. There's, there, there's all these things. And where you have the, these saints that were blessed richly by God, that's in the Bible. And a lot of uh, pastors just try and dismiss this as, well, that's just the Old Testament. Well, the Old Testament's the Bible too. And we really don't do well if we ignore it. You get to the New Testament, it gets a little bit more nuanced how it talks about money because it warns about the spiritual dangers of money, but it doesn't say money's bad. So this is kind of what I see. The Bible talks about money as potentially a good thing, but also warns us against it. Like it, in uh, 1 Timothy, it says that those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people 
eager for money, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The desire to be rich is dangerous. The desire to want to have more and more and more and more and more and more is very dangerous to our soul. But that doesn't mean money itself is what's bad. So this is kind of what the Bible sets up. It's like this complicated thing. Wanting more is dangerous, but the money itself is not necessarily bad. It's the love of money that's the root of many evils, not money itself. Okay, now I want to get back to the rich young ruler. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. What do we do with that? What's interesting is you have another passage in uh, Luke where Jesus is talking to the disciples, and he says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Do you, know, do you see there, there, there's an important difference there? Sell everything you have and give to the poor, the rich young ruler. ruler. To the disciples, sell your position, possessions and give to the poor. To the disciples, he's not telling them to sell everything. In fact, throughout Luke, it's clear they haven't. After Jesus says this, he still talks to them about the stuff they have. So they haven't sold everything. The rich young ruler has a specific problem, and God was giving him a, a specific solution to that problem. That's what he needed. The rich young ruler was the one being told to sell everything. Not all of us. When we read the Bible, a lot of times we misapply things or given to a command given to someone and then apply it to everyone. So now, if you believe what I just said, you're going, okay, wow. Okay, that's a lot. Yeah, okay, so I don't have to sell everything. Actually, I just made things harder, and this is why. Because you can ignore the command to sell everything. But the command that says, sell some of your stuff, live on less, that's a little harder to ignore. And that one is for all of us. I'm going to get to that shortly because about what Jesus expects us to do with our stuff. Because I just now want to talk about the dangers of money and why it is that the Bible cares so much about money being dangerous. One of the best Christmas gifts my wife gave me was a, uh, a good knife because I like cooking, right? And so this great cutting knife where I could cut tomatoes like paper thin and just, man, you know, we have some cooks in, in here, right? You know, the joy of using a good knife is just, oh, Leave me alone, I'm cutting. <laughs> and the thing about it, that knife doesn't know the difference between a tomato and my finger, right? Fortunately, there's no gross-out story to go with that, but this point. The sharper a knife is, the, more, the better it does its job, but the more dangerous it is, the, the more easily it will cut you. Money's like that. Money is a great tool. And the more you have of it, the sharper that knife is. I, I just, uh, last week, week before last, I got to go to Florida to meet with a client. So I'm a ghostwriter. That's what I do. I write books for people. And this gentleman went from being in prison 13 years ago, and now he just sold his business for a lot of money. And I mean, I got to stay in his house that was a bonafide mansion. You know, it's like, normally, like, clients will put me up in a hotel, and he's like, well, can I, do you mind staying in my house? It's 8,000 square feet. Okay, you know, and you know, if I were to show you pictures, like, like the back, the, the, their pool area, there's the pool, there's the hot tub that's connected to it, there's one waterfall there, there's one waterfall there, there's a little grotto underneath this pool, and it's all encaged in like this, this mosquito net, and you can look out and see like the Florida marshes, and oh yes, I saw an alligator out in the lake. Okay, this place was cool. This guy had money. 
but also as a believer in Christ, he's given a ton away. And he's able to, he knows how having that amount of money allows him to work efficiently. He understands the value of it as a tool. And again, he like talks about this, this guy that helped get out of prison. Uh, I don't have time to go into the story, but there's so much about our prison system that doesn't work when a 15-year-old kid goes to prison for life because he defended himself against an abusive, stepfather, abusive father. End of that. But able to get this kid out, uh, help get you know, him on parole, and buy him a house. How many of us can just go buy a house for someone? This guy could. So money is a powerful tool, but it is a very dangerous one, like a very, very sharp knife that can very easily cut us and hurt us. And I'm kind of inclined to think that God doesn't give us more money than we can safely handle. And for some of us, that's the equivalent of a butter knife, like a, one of the plastic ones. But if we're able to handle money well and use it properly, God's able to entrust us with more. So here's some of the dangers of money. Money tends to master us. Possessions quickly possess us. Having things means taking care of things, right? You know, if you have a house, you have to take care of it. If you have a car, you have to take care of it. If you have a boat, you're just dumping money into the Puget Sound, right? It's not that any of those things are bad, but they so easily take control of us. Stuff is not necessarily bad, but it naturally steals our time and energy away from God, from our friends, from our family. It can be used for good, like this gentleman did. But how easy it would be for him or for any of us, whether you have a lot of money or little, to let the, the money master you and take your heart. And this is why, um, as Jesus said, get to the right spot here. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or else you'll be devoted to one, despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. If you have to choose whether or not money is going to master you, because it naturally will. And second of all, money and possessions tend to distract us from eternity. The things of this life make it easier to forget about the next life. In uh, Luke, in the same passage where he was talking, where uh, he told the, let's see, this is Luke 12, 23. 33, sorry. Where he's talking to the disciples about selling stuff. He says, sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourself where, that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that never fails, where no thief can come near, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Naturally, money will grab your heart. I think of years ago, I had an old Chevy Metro. And uh, on one snowy day, I kind of plowed into a curb, and it bent the alignment on one of the wheels. Um, so that meant when I drove it, I had to always keep a little pressure to this side, because if I drove straight, I would go that way. But if I go this way, like this, I should have just gotten the alignment done. But tires at Larry's Auto Wrecking at the time were so cheap. I just kept on getting new tires. Anyways, possessions are like that. They will naturally lead you away from God. That's the nature of stuff. It will naturally pull you away from God. That doesn't mean they're bad. It's just that's what they do. That you have to put a little correction on always this whole thing to kind of keep our attention back on God. 
So this is kind of, how, how do we, given that money can be so dangerous, and it can so easily pull us away from things of eternity, that pull, pull us away from God, that can possess us, that can take all of our attention, how do we keep, how do we prevent that? You know, honestly, a, a radical vow of poverty is simpler. Giving everything up is the easy way to do that. But it comes at a cost, because then you're not able to use your money to bless others. I think of the way my daughter, you know, as the pictures were going up there, she's the, the young one there. And um, so I'm choking up just because of the pictures of them in Germany. Like, it's just Germany. But the generosity that flowed from, from a lot of you and from other people that allowed my daughter to go on that trip. That's where I start choking up because that generosity wasn't, it's not just money. That demonstrated to God, I'm sorry, that was God demonstrating to grace that he's taking care of her. It was God working through you all to do something in her. And as, you know, you watch your kids and you want to see them know God and have this personal relation. And for us to not step in and just let that process take place, because, of gen see, if I, if you guys all are taking a vow of property, that wouldn't be able to happen, right? So money's not a bad thing. It's just dangerous. We have to be careful with it. So, this is kind of my, the three practices I really see as being crucial to help us steer straight. First, contentment. Contentment is key because when, when, this is what Paul says, in the same, just before he talks about, uh, just before he talks about money being uh, the root of all sorts of evil, love of money being the root of all sorts of evil, he says, godliness with contentment is great gain, for he brought nothing to the world we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. If you aren't, if you aren't content with whatever, whatever level you're at now, you'll never be content. That's the reality. If your basics are taken care of, like Paul's talking there, we have food, we have clothing, we have a place to stay. Those basics are taken care of, and you're not content, you will never be content. So practicing contentment, seeking, that's what will free you from greed. It's like, you know what? The car I have, it's a little old, but it gets me from A to B. It's fine. I'm content. My house may not have like some amazing view, but it keeps us warm. We can have people over. I'm content. You know, I, I'm not eating gourmet, but I'm eating. I'm content. My clothes, well, you know, they may be not longer ago than last year's style, and maybe, you know, as this grows, the shirt's getting a little tighter. I changed shirts this morning because I realized the other one doesn't fit as well. But you know what? My clothes fit. I'm fine. I'm content. That's the first thing that will help keep money from taking control is that, that contentment. Simplicity. When it says the second one, simplicity. Sell your possessions, give to the poor. There's a, a, it's not simply giving money to the poor. Getting rid of stuff and giving it away frees your soul. Like the whole Marie, what's her name? Marie Kondo? Yeah. Her. And there's all those, my wife loves a lot of that stuff. And the lesson that you, you can't, unless you've done it, you can't realize, it's hard to believe it, but you have less stuff, you're happier, right? You get rid of it, it's like, hey, this actually feels good. How many of you like tried to sell your house, but then you weren't able to, but in the process you get rid of a bunch of stuff and realize you didn't need that stuff, right? It's like, this is actually, life is better. Obviously, I, people go to extreme with simplicity and it gets a little weird and that becomes its own legalism. I'm not talking about that, but just 
living with a higher level of simplicity loosens our gra- this world's grasp on us. But then the key thing is generosity. And man, I believe in generosity. That generosity is all giving forms of giving. Giving to kids going on missions trips, giving to the poor, giving to, to friends, giving to the church. That we are open hands with what we have and we give away. Generosity is really cool because it allows us to have the best of both worlds. It's you get to have, but yet give away. Your key biblical principle, God said to Abraham, I will bless you so, and all, world, all the nations will be blessed through you. We're blessed to be a blessing. And so God gives us things and we get to give it away. I think of when my uh, girls were younger, you know, lived in Quadrant, uh, the Skagit Highlands, so many neighbors, so many kids running around. We'd go buy a big box of the Otter Pops, because those things are cheap, have a, and we'd keep those in the freezer, and then we'd just be able to give a stack of them to our daughters and say, give them away. And they could do that, and that was fun for them, it's fun for us. That's like God gives us things so that we can give them away. If my daughters, if they were to come back with like, 10 empty Otter Pop holders and like multicolored stains all over their dress, that'd be a sign they weren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, right? That what we gave them to give to others, they save, they use for themselves. But that's what we do all the time. God gives to us so that we can give to others and experience that joy of giving. You know, to boil down that, that initial question of like, how will we know it's enough? When is it enough? When will we've given enough? I'm going to just tell you what my perspective is, imagine a football field. On one side is sacrificial giving. The Bible talks about, you know, that you give, that you give sacrificially. On the other hand is being able to enjoy the things you have. I believe God's going to have us run back and forth the two ends of that field. There are going to be times in our lives where we're called to give sacrificially to just like the very edge of what we can do. God's doing something in our lives, and we have to, maybe money's getting a tighter grip on us. We need to give more this time. There's other times where we can enjoy the stuff we have, but what's not on the field is accumulating and never giving. I believe that uh, we, basically God invests in us so that we can give to others, so we can show generosity to others. And I know I've gone long because I'm seeing that the clock stopped some time ago, so I'm going to try and wrap this up. Here's kind of my thing of my encouragement when it comes to being generous. First of all, just to say, if you, you we've all experienced the, the joy of generosity. Then we're able to give something to someone. It's just like, that's awesome. This is my encouragement. Don't wait till you have more money to start being generous. Years ago, Marilyn and I prayed, God help us be more generous, and immediately my income went down. Okay, God. And so we had to learn how to be generous with less. And we were. That's, it's kind of, that's not the preferred way of doing it, but you can be generous with what, at whatever level you're at. No matter where you're at, learn to be generous. Don't wait till you have more money. Intentionally give to your church. That's a core part of what we're doing. Generosity is a lot of fun, but I've known people who've chosen to do the, gener- the fun, generous stuff rather than providing for the church so they can keep the lights on because that doesn't sound as fun. Do both. Don't, not one or the other. Find ways to give spontaneously. Okay, God, just give me away. How, how, can I, how can I be generous today? And just wait for it. And then finally, build room into your budget for 
being generous. Like, leave room there. Like, okay, how? Just this money's here. I can give when I need to. So, on one hand, there's this radical idea that we should live on as little as possible, but the normal American thing is to um, keep everything and spend as much as possible. But I think what God calls us to is enjoy our money, enjoy our possessions, as it overflows in generosity to other people. Because God gives us so that we can give to others. And that's my prayer for us, is that all of us can learn to have that, those hearts of generosity, that understand that nothing we have is ours. Everything was given to us, like those otter pops, so that we can give them to other people. Yeah, we get to have one for ourselves too, but God gives to us so that we can give to others. Let's uh, pray. Father, there's just such a fundamentally, two fundamental views of money and possessions. The first is it's mine, and I give, and I might give away some of it if I want to. The other is it's all yours, and it flows from you through me to others. And I pray that you help us to adopt that other perspective, the second perspective, that we understand everything we have is yours, and that you bless us with the opportunity to bless others. I pray you help us to be people of generosity that don't live in fear that we're going to have to like become uh, take a vow of poverty, but rather that we can live joyfully, receiving your goodness and then giving it to others. In your name, amen. Thanks for
If you want more information on Hub City Church, find us at thehubcitychurch.com. Thanks for listening.